0: Why not Africa requires Africans to speak out, to showcase what Africa truly is, the gem that it really is. This is our time to just kind of push through so many barriers. And with that takes a concerted effort, a different lens of viewing it and its people. Replace that old school thinking with a fresh, dynamic, agile, youthful mindset that embraces the power of technology that's able to speak A language that investors understand got to see beyond what we know, allow young people to be experimental and to be innovative and to invest in said innovation and make it attractive that they go and learn abroad and bring that knowledge back to the continent. Be open to getting fresh ideas in policy, get the young voices represented in policy making, and be open to just changing the god.
1: Welcome to the Diving for Pearls Podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Gina P. Nelson. On this show, we will feature women in the UAE and across the globe who are breaking ground in their industry while at the same time transforming the cultural landscape. The women whom we will feature here on this podcast are in many ways analogous to pearl divers, women who have taken calculated risks to uncover and harvest pearls of wisdom, insights that have led them to illuminate their pathway and the pathway of others these women are thought leaders innovators visionaries women who embody the spirit of the founding father of the uae his highness sheikh zayed bin sultan al Nahyan. we invite you to listen in take the plunge Reflect on the poignant stories of courage and resilience while delving deeper into your own journey of self discovery and exploration. Pearls lie not on the seashore. If thou desires one, thou must dive for it. Anonymous. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Diving for Pearls podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Gina P. Nelson. As we near the end of season one, we would like to extend our sincere gratitude to all of our listeners for their encouraging and personalized messages and for spreading the word about the many women, thought leaders, innovators, and visionaries we have thus far featured on the show. We also want to take the time to acknowledge the multitude of male listeners who have also tuned into the podcast and spread the word. We really appreciate your support. As much as it seems as if this podcast is about women, we know that female empowerment is not inclusive of women. It is everyone's challenge and responsibility. Additionally, on the Diving for Pearls podcast, the core of what we do is really sharing stories. Because we know in the telling of our stories, we are able to inspire, uplift, and empower one another. So again, a very special thank you to all of our listeners and our guests who have been featured for believing in the power of story to affect change and transform lives. So before we actually start by introducing today's guests, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is the last episode in season one. And our guest is not aware that she is actually wrapping up season one. So I wanna say a special thank you to our guest, Mucha Nyandoro, who I will introduce very shortly. I just wanna also let everyone know that we will move our second season to Africa in the fall of 2022, where we will continue to showcase the stories of global thought leaders, innovators, and visionaries. And last, I also want to make everyone aware of the platform we're currently building. We're a little delayed, so we apologize, but we are building the Bella and Bella platform, which is really a platform about building a strong community of women. First, let me give a shout out to the two individuals who introduced our guests today. A special shout out to Yvonne Matengwa from episode 13. She is the founder of Narratives PR and the founder of Travel Essence Magazine. So thank you, Yvonne. We hope to see you soon. And Mayowa Adeoke from episode 16, who is a foreign correspondent based in Dubai for one of Africa's leading news stations. So thank you again to both ladies, because we are women supporting each other. So I would like to introduce now our guest. She is a dynamic, performance driven professional with solid experience across several sectors and business disciplines. She has worked in leadership positions for Tier 1 global finance institutions, in corporate and investment banking, in legal services, retail, management consulting, and enterprise. She is a well sought out speaker, moderator, commentator, and mentor who is currently using her professional tribe's platform to spread positivity and insights to audiences, many thousands online. Her moderating work covers an extensive global client base and a range of topics at industry events, such as the Global Business Forum Africa at Dubai Expo 2020 by Dubai Chamber and the Economics Group. She has been acknowledged as an inspirational figure by various global entities, which include our local Dubai Chamber of Commerce and Industry. She's been featured in various publications, including Balance for Better by UN Women, DBWC, which is the Dubai Business Women Council, and the University of Wollongong, an executive women Middle East and other mass media platforms. And I actually could go on and on because I found a dearth of research on her online. So you just need to Google Mucho Niyandaro. So Mucho, I would like to say welcome to our show.
0: Thank you. Thank you ever so much, Gina. I feel most welcome and very excited to be following the path of some of these incredible women you've had on to date.
1: Thank you. And we really want to say thank you again for your patience, because we know we went back and forth a couple of times, but we are so fortunate to have you as our final guest. And it just makes a beautiful segue because I know you are of African heritage. And as we mentioned in the beginning, we are shifting now to Africa. So thank you again.
0: My absolute pleasure, Nona. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the reminder. Matcha, sorry. <laughs> I am I am really trying to get her name correct. So Matcha, I really appreciate it. I just saw it pop in the chat. I really appreciate it, wonderful. So Matcha, I actually wanna begin because I don't know your backstory. So can we take a few minutes to just unpack your backstory, your roots that come from Zimbabwe? your migration then to the UK, and then a little bit of before you arrived in 2012 to the UAE. So if we could start with your Zimbabwean roots, please.
0: Sure. So my parents are Zimbabwean. My father is Zimbabwean slash Zambian. My mom is thoroughbred Zimbabwean. Uh, We were born and partly raised in the UK and then moved to Zimbabwe for some schooling before going back to the UK for my university. So I've kind of straddled, I've lived more outside Zimbabwe than I have there, but very, very passionate about the motherland and the place of my parents' birth. So hence why you will very often see a lot of Zimbabwean references in most of my social media presence. Moving to Dubai in 2012 from the UK, I got brought here by an investment bank I was working for at the time, and I have been in the UAE now since 2012, which marks my 10 years this year. So really exciting journey of experiencing the professional world, predominantly in the West and the Middle East and Africa, but well, often not always cover the African region in all my roles.
1: Thank you, Mita. I'm pronouncing your name as best as I can. (laughs) I do want to actually ask you, what was it like growing up as a female? I know your roots are Zimbabwean, but then the UK. But if you could tell us a little bit about the dynamics, if you don't mind, in your household. And were there any strong female figures there?
0: Oh gosh, I'm surrounded by a military of strong females, which probably has influenced very much who I am today. I think some of it has been great. The others I've learned to kind of shift what works and what doesn't in terms of that strength. So yeah, matriarchal family in every sense of the word, I was raised by a single mom. And, you know, everything that I've learned about womanhood really has come from either observing her or learning from her. Moving that into the workplace, I've always gravitated towards women's causes. And I think part of that comes from, seeing the struggles that women from all walks of life face is a universality in the issues that women face interestingly enough and as i've grown older and maturer, you know I've, i've learned very quickly that our female concerns are culture race agnostic as long as you're a woman there's a laundry list of things that you will typically encounter along the way so what that's done is really motivate me to seeing how i can be a champion for women who perhaps don't have as loud a voice or who feel that their voice could do with some amplifying could do with some recognizing even uh, which has been quite an interesting journey for me quite frankly because what it's meant is that I've been exposed to you know things that I'm very often not qualified to contend with but what you there you learn quite quickly to do is to tap into your network and understand who can support in areas that you may not be qualified. And when I talk about qualification, I am talking about things that require maybe psychiatry, psychology, um, therapy, ETC, but they are fundamental women's issues, as I keep saying, that are universal. And if I can in any way facilitate empowerment of women, then I'm always, always happy to do so.
1: Thank you for sharing that. We know that a lot of young women in Africa are at risk. A lot of it has to do with norms around traditions and the denying of women these educational opportunities. What are some of those risk factors and how can we help mitigate some of those risk factors for young women in Africa in particular?
0: Yeah, I think this question can go in one of many directions, Gina. So, you know, the the sorts of issues that we learn of relating to young women, the girl child in Africa, typically around education, access to education, financial inclusion, social security, domestic violence, the list does go on quite, quite a lot. And there being a sense sometimes that you don't have organizations as you may have in the West, for instance, who champion these causes, yes, you'll find NGOs dotted around, but for the volume of issues that come through the system, a lot of people just kind of slip through the the net. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of what resonates most with me. I suppose understanding the power of education means that academic inclusion is quite an important one. Fortunately, in Zimbabwe, we've got a very high literacy rate. So this is an issue that we hear so much from there, as you would from other African countries. That said, you know, women are a vulnerable segment in society just broadly. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. A lot of stories that need to be told because a bit like you, I'm such a strong believer in the power of storytelling as a tool to galvanize people to support, right, or to realize that actually there are solutions to what might seem a very unique issue to me. So it's in telling these stories and sharing these narratives, I think that people are then able to either find avenues for support or find inspiration to support.
1: Agreed. We definitely believe in the transformative power of story and actually providing space for those stories to be told. And just going back to some of the issues that you talked about and mentioned, girl-child access in Africa. One of the reports I looked at, which was according to UNICEF, a 2019 report, they said four in 10 women in the region were married or in some kind of union before the age of 18. And then 15% were married before the age of 15. And we know that across the globe, young girls and marriage is one of the things that prohibits them sometimes from fully participating in the economics and expansion of that society. What do you see as some of the resolutions to that?
0: Yeah, the issue of child marriage is... (laughs) One of those that's been around for centuries, right? And I think as with any solution-oriented mindset, if you like, one's got to think about how to amplify the voices of these young women or really to educate the parents who sell their children off, and I use the word sell quite loosely here, but who are open to giving their daughters away. Very often you find that there's an economic motivation for it. My daughter generates a bride price that means I'm able to feed the rest of my family or indeed raise a dowry for my son is some of the logic that sometimes goes into the creation of this this cycle, as it were. Or, you know, as a way of alleviating poverty, you've got the rich farmer down the road who's telling you, give me your 13-year-old daughter in exchange of X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's a long-standing issue that really does, I guess, require a lot more advocacy from people whose voices are listened to. I do think that you've got figures who kind of stand up and play ambassadorial roles for for the girl child globally. But unfortunately, if it's women talking to women about women's issues, then you don't really get much of a solution. The education must happen with the fathers who very often are the decision makers in these transactions. So that education of men, I think is really important. And it takes, you know, the power of media, the power of UNICEF and these larger organizations whose mandate is to address these issues to, I guess, have more of a concerted response to to the proliferation of of child marriage. I
1: definitely agree that there's a lot that can be done amongst various stakeholders. So Looking, as, as you mentioned, the fathers, their people in office in the government, looking at all the community stakeholders to actually amplify the voices of these women. And I definitely agree that education for me as an educator always seems to be the biggest equalizer in terms of giving women, young women and girls access, full access to participating in society. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. You've been here in the region since 2012. What are some of the shifts that you've seen in terms of women really fully participating in the economics and the political power here in the UAE? And what are you seeing that also in Africa as well? I know you are not necessarily removed, no longer living there, but you still have strong roots there. First, let's start with Africa, your homeland.
0: Right. So given that we've got 54 countries to go through, how much time do we have? <laughs> okay. I think for 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 women generally, there is more of an awakening, right? Women understand the role and the contribution that they have to economics, to society, ETC, which means that there's more of a, a boldness, I suppose, to claim our space and to be heard the agenda for women empowerment, you'll hear in many parliaments, you've got ministries that have been set aside for women and children affairs, for instance. And I think all of that is in a bid to just ensure that they remain front and centre. I think it kind of cuts into economics as well, where large entities, the banking sector, financial services have got financial inclusion programmes, for instance, that are dedicated to women. So I think a lot more is being done to address the plight that women face in Africa. And across to the UAE, it's been a fantastic story to watch unfold here, where, you know, I've I've been for many years involved with the Dubai Business Women Council, which is part of the Chamber of Commerce. And kind of seeing the growth of that organization has been nothing short of inspiring. And what it talks to really is this welcoming of people of any nationality if you are resident in the UAE, you want to set up a business, you want to learn, you want to grow, you want to trade within your peer group, there's something for everybody there. And a real commitment from the leadership over here to ensure that you know women have got a legitimate role in their herd. And that spills into recent legislation, which calls for at least public sector listed companies to have female representation at board level. So I think you're starting to find that a lot of these programs are designed to make sure that women are seen and their voices heard, which is contrary to what perhaps the rest of the world may think about UAE. In fact, it's often really fascinating when having discussions with people who've never been here or haven't done much research into the UAE, how... Leak their perception of the region is, let alone the country. So, uh, part of what we do as expats here is really educate and say, listen, we live a very normal life out here. In fact, I've found that the concentration of women's causes actually makes it easier to flourish in a society such as this because it's all new, it's all dynamic, it's exciting. If you've got something that the market is interested in, then you can carve out your space, but like America did back in the day with anyone's dream being realized, I think the UAE is the 2.0, as it were, of that model.
1: Agreed. There's been a great shift, and I agree here. The leadership here has definitely taken taken this on board full front. And they are looking to accelerate and boost women's participation in all aspects, um, not just managerial roles, but legislative as well as executive. I agree that unbeknownst to probably a lot of individuals across the globe, the UAE is actually at the forefront in terms of getting women in those top positions. I think the numbers are close to now 30%. I've been here since 2014 in terms of women being in these top government roles. And they're aiming, of course, for 50%. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And we'll come back to female empowerment because this is. One thing that I'm definitely an advocate of, and we are trying our best here to do all that we can to uplift and empower young women and girls across the globe. Mucha. You've had such a big role in this last Dubai Expo 2021. And in listening to your Instagram feed and looking at some of the platforms you've been on, I know you've been really pushing for countries to look to Africa for investment opportunities, really looking again to showcase what's happening in Africa in terms of this growing and burgeoning economy. So I actually want to start there. And if we could just start first, Mucha, with your company. So you founded Manala in 2015. And it's an advisory and strategic development and social impact platform, again, emphasizing women empowerment. But I want you to speak to our listeners about the purpose and how you've actually used the platform of Manalith really to put front and center, I would say, African excellence.
0: Sure. Um, thank you for that question, Gina. You know, Manolith is is my baby in every sense of the word. At the point that you roll off a long history in corporate America, corporate England, corporate universe, there is something to be said about sort of charting a new path, which is what I did with with Manolith back then. The idea behind it, I suppose, was to think, okay, I've been working in these corporate roles for this amount of time. Let me take what I've learned in these environments and apply it apply it to to my own world directly. Quite a daunting path to walk down, but equally a very exciting one. So what I've found is I've gravitated towards, and you know, like most entrepreneurs will tell you if you, as you speak to them on this platform and, and socially, that very often you'll find that you've got so many permutations to your business model because what you think the market needs when you start out may be very different from reality, or you actually find you start gravitating towards something that's in higher demand. So that need to be flexible, that need to be agile becomes part and parcel of what your business model must look like. Coming back directly to your question, though, about how I've used manolith, manolith for me has been, if you like, the license to to express. Who I am, where I'm from, what I believe in, and if I could marry my professional experience with my socialization, with my personality, with you know my knowledge, then I feel I'm onto something because you know you, you it's it's very difficult I suppose to be an authentic business person if one you're not sold into the vision that you have and you're not selling that vision to people or people aren't receiving it as you intended it to so yes my Zimbabwean heritage has always been something I'm very proud of Zimbabwe educated me Zimbabwe is where a lot of my social skills and my you know belief structures would have been formulated outside the home and within of course And so I wanted to bring that to market. And for me, it's realizing that you've got so many MOUs and trade relationships that are developing quite quickly, actually, between the UAE and Africa. There's a bridging that needs to happen. There are voices that need to be heard. What role can I play for either businesses here looking into Africa or African entities looking into the Middle East? And this is how that sweet spot then gets born, as it were.
1: Thank you. You've touched on so many different points, but I just want to talk about it in terms of first starting your business. And you touched upon that point about initially when you're starting a business, you may think this is what the market needs. And then obviously you have to do some shifting. And I'm even finding that with Bella and Bella Productions, that as we're developing this model, we thought maybe it could be a community model where we really support. Women entrepreneurs, women-led businesses. But as we do research, and as you've mentioned, sometimes you notice that you the model may have to shift. So I agree with you. You probably have to go through several permutations, as you've mentioned, and being flexible as an entrepreneur is key. I also want to tie back to what you said. You said Manolith, and I know you shared this before we began that the name came from I believe you said your son or your daughter and your nephew. And then you said it was really a license to express who you are. So how would you describe Muta niandara?
0: Well, I hate that question, Gina. <laughs> no, only because when you are a dynamic person, such as I believe I am, it's really difficult to describe it in a succinct way, because I think I represent so many different things. And it also depends on to whom I'm representing those things. So I don't spend as much time thinking about who I am than the impact I have, if that makes any sense at all. So, yes, Manolith is a combination of four boys' names stringed together into a single word. And I think, you know, part of the vision behind that was, one, I wanted it to represent something close and personal to me, because that's exactly what it is. And it's actually an extension, if you like, of my children. My nephews are my children. So there is this sense of, okay, this is my my other baby.
1: Okay, that's perfectly fine. I love how you answer that. So, what is the impact that you wish to have when we think about young women, young girls, and women across the globe?
0: I would want to grow professional tribes exponentially because what I think, what I believe that does and for the purposes of anyone who doesn't know what professional tribes is, is a platform I set up during COVID, which is really a platform that talks to professional related issues. I think the strength that I bring professionally comes from being in environments where I'm either the only female, I'm the only black face on the floor, or the only young person on the team. So there've always been these sorts of dynamics that I've had to contend with, sometimes more successfully than others. What that's left is a real desire to prevent, if you like, some of the four paths for being on that journey and sort of trying to figure things out on your own, because you either don't have role models or examples to learn from, is actually, if I know my network is absolutely insane, I have got the most phenomenal people in my network going that I'm extremely proud of, all of whom have got the biggest hearts. And have very easily bought into this vision that says through professional tribes, let's get you guys to share your experiences and help that person who may otherwise struggle. So I, for instance, would have had a panel of lawyers who, you know, you go, you study in South Africa, but you're a British national. You've grown up in, say, Malawi. That transition of thinking, yes, university is cheaper in South Africa, so I'm going to go there and then move to the UK. Then when you find that you go to the UK, your qualification means nothing you've gonna you know you're needing to start the process again because it's not recognized. it's this sort of thing that for me screams you're not only educating the student but you're educating their parents so that they make decisions that in the long term benefit their child and actually save them financially. So, you know, I I really have a desire to get into every household, not only of black origin, but anyone who's got a professional interest to watch some of the content, if not all the content that we have, because there are always some really incredible people kind of sharing their knowledge, which I think is absolutely awesome.
1: Oh, beautiful. And I will definitely join some of the conversations there on Professional Tribe's platform. And we'll ask you for your media social handles a little later. But I agree with you, like just creating a space is so critical to everyone's growth, you know, in terms of sharing those experiences and then individuals being able to use those experiences to maximize their own potential. So, I know you spoke a lot about using LinkedIn and using different platforms to network. There's that stereotype that women don't really help each other, women are really very competitive, et cetera. How do you think women can act as supporters, keen supporters of each other, and connectors both to people and opportunities?
0: Yeah. I love this question, Gina, and this is something that I reflect on only too often. What I've come to realize quite early on is that this is sometimes not even a woman issue. It's an individual issue, right? So for all the good that, for instance, I might believe I'm doing, I'm going to rub people up the wrong way. I'm going to be accepted wholeheartedly by a different group of people. And not taking that personally means that you can navigate this woman's space quite easily. Right. So in my case, really, I think having that mindset that says, let me know who is in my circle and let me vet the people that are in my circle, because at the point that you've got conflicting ideologies, which is fine in certain instances, but if you're, you're, your moral campus, if your values aren't aligned then chances are you're going to clash at some point and I would rather segregate myself or keep those people in the outer tiers in the outer if you think of a concentric circle you know it's that furthest bit that that type of person may well occupy in my personal life the kind of women that I do call my tribe are the ones who literally think who can i bring into this room with me if i'm invited for a client or i'm sitting in front of a client and the client is telling me what their their needs are a tangential point might come up that makes me think ah i need to have so and so speaking to this guy because actually this is either their area of expertise or a service that they can provide so really it's just about having an attitude that says The more open one's palm is, the more space there is to receive. I go into rooms without the mindset of what am I going to get from here rather than what can I give. And what that's done is really just opened up the world to me, quite frankly, because I think that spirit of giving means that you attract people giving to you in return, which I think is a fundamental tenet by which one should live by.
1: Yeah, very beautiful, Muta. I love what you talked about in terms of, you know, the more you open, it's just a beautiful analogy, the more you open your palm, the more you receive. And I like what you talked about, this vetting process that you have. In terms of looking in your circle and really vetting those individuals and are those individuals serving you? I do something similar when I go on a scouting call, etc. And when there's a need for something, I always think, okay, which women can I bring on board for this project? Okay, which woman can I align with this company's or client's needs? So we are like minded in that manner. There are a couple of things when we talk about female relationships. And one of the reports that I looked at from eLiving Today, and I think it was a 2021 report, it said 89% of women set more ambitious goals in the presence of other women. So just by helping one another, we end up setting a higher bar for ourselves, which I thought was so interesting. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Absolutely, Gina. And you know what? My thing, you know, you talk about the competitive spirit of women. Yes, I do think, in fact, we compete for for scarce resources, right? That's the the root of competition in economics, in nature, whatever field of, of life you might want to apply it to. If you go into a situation with that scarcity mindset, then for sure you're like crabs in a bucket. At the point that you realize, actually, this pie is big enough for everybody, And there's certain things that Gina is better at doing than I am. Yes, we may both do stuff on social media or podcast type stuff or women empowerment things, but my job is to recognize what you do better than me, to learn from that, but also to not feel threatened that if I put you in a room, it's going to take my shine away because I'm confident in the lights that I radiate and it's going to take a mountain, a monster to dial that down. And I'm not intimidated by what women bring. I actually celebrate it because it's a nice coming together that would become a force field. So this has kind of been my mantra and something that, as I say, I live by it doesn't always work well if it's not a lot, you know, matched up with people who see the world through similar lenses. And I respect that 100%. But what I'm saying, those that I call mine, those that I do look to champion, I might decide to, I don't know, pay more attention to the things that said client is saying because I've, I've come into this room thinking actually from the initial brief I can already tell that this is not the right room for me to be in but guess what let me come in here as a proxy for Gina and make sure that by the time I leave I've pitched Gina as the person who needs to be running with this and I can excuse myself from that with the belief that mine is coming and what's meant for me nobody can take away so there is that absolute confidence.
1: I love all the things that you're saying about scarcity mindset. I think the more as women we could share our knowledge, the better off we'll be. I definitely agree that there's always room for people at the top, always room for another woman at the top. And even women who are, as you mentioned, better or stronger in a certain area of expertise. I have no issue with that. We all bring different skill sets to the table. And why not, if we have the opportunity, I'm always an advocate of bringing women along with me, I say, why not have another woman experience and also let the light shine upon her? I agree 100% on shining the light on other women as well. When you have opportunities availed to you that may be quite unique and or powerful.
0: I just wanted to add, Gina, that very often as well in a bit, especially for people on this entrepreneurial journey, In a bid to get all revenues into your books, sometimes you overcommit and you then don't deliver as well as you could if you thought, actually, you know what, I'm biting off so much more than I can chew here. Let me bring my friend Yvonne to the table. Because one, you talked about African excellence earlier on, which is something that I passionately believe in. I'm all about dignity for Africa, dignity for Africans, and we can't keep feeding into. The, this belief system that we're not good for very much. So delivery becomes absolutely critical. If I know that I'm going to give a substandard delivery because I'm trying to do more than I'm qualified to, then I'm being dumb. Let me get somebody who can. And if it means I'm going to get 10% rather than 100% of a fee on this, at least I've got something coming through my book. So this is the sort of mindset that I tend to to run with.
1: You just reminded me something, Buchef, just asking for help when we need it, too. Yeah. So if I'm overcommitted, and right now I honestly feel overcommitted and overwhelmed, and I just reached out to someone on my team and I just said, can you help me with this and kind of take this off my table for this week? And she was like, sure, I can. Yeah. So I agree.
0: Yeah. And you know what, Gina? Funny enough, i have not always mastered the art of asking for help. So, you know, one of the, the questions that you had asked me offline was what my superpower was. And I'm sorry if I'm preempting a question that you were looking to ask later. And I sat there thinking, I don't actually know. And I don't know, because very often what would be termed as superpowers are things that come quite naturally to us. So we don't pay as much attention to them. It very often takes other people to shed that light on one superpower. So I kind of asked three of the people who are closest to me what they would say if you had asked them that question. And the responses were actually quite interesting. One of them said that mine is a generosity of spirit. I had, I have the ability, uh, an unnatural ability to forgive, which I thought was pretty cool. I've never really thought about that. My sister said I was super intuitive and my best friend described me as weeding out the BS from the word go. So again, this ability to just see through stuff and pick out what's relevant and discount that which isn't. But everything is really quite people-centric in those descriptions, which made my heart smile somewhat.
1: I was going to ask you, Micha, wonderful attributes to have. How did you feel receiving those compliments? Because sometimes I feel as women, we kind of brush them off and we're not okay with saying thank you. You know, oh, that, you know, we usually have some kind of excuse. I know sometimes I do personally, but how did you feel when you heard that you know, your friends sharing you. You're very generous. Have this generosity and being intuitive. I think you said it was your sister that said you're intuitive.
0: No, it, uh, it's it's great actually. I, it makes, as I said, it made my heart smile because it means that what people are receiving is aligned to what I intend to do. I think there's nothing worse than thinking or believing that you're communicating something about yourself, but the world receiving something completely different. Right. So in relationships, for instance, you may complain about something and the the recipient of that complaint thinks that it's a direct criticism on them and you don't love them anymore and, you know, can create a whole story around something that quite innocently came out of you as being constructive in your own mind. So I do think that that alignment of what you're communicating through your words and deeds matching what your recipients get is so powerful. that so this really did make me think, okay, I'm onto something. I personally may not have chosen that list of things because as I said earlier on, if these things come quite naturally to you, you don't think about them as much. I would have probably said something like talk, being talkative.
1: But I, I think there's some power there in aligning your actions to core values. I, I think that's where we all should be striving really. And it seems as if from the commentary that your friends and your close family members have given you is that you are doing that. So you are walking in alignment with your core values. I wanna ask you something, Misha, because I know you have a close kinship to Yvonne Metengua, who we mentioned was from episode number 13. Who are some of the other female champions who have been really strong and encouraging you, inspiring you along your entrepreneurial journey that you would like to give credit to today?
0: Oh, I've got my sounding boards. So I have some, as I say, amazing people. My sister's my day one. So she's always been encouraging. I've got my mom to throw in there. I've got my best friend, whose name is Tenji. She's the superstar lawyer out here in the UAE. You should have her on your show. This is me bringing her into the room, but she's just a phenomenal human being. And, you know, a lot of these people, there's another friend of mine called Sheena. So I've got some people who play very pivotal roles in this chapter of my life and where there's been any sense of self doubt where there's been any insecurity really about getting into a space that's unfamiliar unknown to you pivoting from you know the security of a 9 to 9 job and then starting something out on your own can be quite daunting and all these women have come in at the perfect time And just been encouraging, I've got my other half, who obviously is my right hand person as well, just kind of speaking and depositing great stuff into me, which then makes you feel quite invincible with this circle of people, right? And you can do anything that you set your mind to. But yeah, I would say my other half, my best friend, my sister, my close friends, I do have a circle of just phenomenal, phenomenal human beings. So there is a man included in there, by the way. I know you said which women, but I can't leave him out of the equation. And then there's nothing like children to motivate you to keep pressing forward. So when you know that you've got responsibility for other people's lives, for my personality type, that is the biggest motivator going. You've got to get it right for them.
1: Definitely. And that's about what we talk about in terms of being role models for the next generation. So even more impetus to walk the walk, as I say, as a leader, as female entrepreneurs, as mothers, as sisters, as daughters. So 100 percent. Thank you for sharing all those individuals, women and men who have been influential in your life. Looking at Instagram, I noticed that you seem to have done some inner work. So you, yes, you say you have the strong tribe. What has some of that inner work been like for you? I can't imagine when you are starting this company, you just dove right in, but maybe you did. How do you manage fear and uncertainty? That's one. And what is some of that background work that helps you to manage fear uncertainty?
0: Sure. Thank you, Gina. Mine is simple. I've got a 24-hour rule that I apply to most things. When I'm upset, I don't get fearful very often. That's an emotion that I've completely rejected, even in the face of a a lion stalking my tent. This is a real story, by the way, that Yvonne will be (laughs) privy to. But mine is very much a, a sense that spending time worrying about the things that could go wrong takes away from finding solutions, For those things. So, yes, plan with that risk mindset, understand your landscape beautifully. But within that, there must always be a solution orientation which says, okay, if X, Y, and Z was to happen, how do I mitigate against that? And what's my best defense against whatever the issue is? I'm not very good at if you like housing negativity, it's not in my nature to do that for too long. And I I worry about it becoming this downward spiral. So I protect, I guard my heart against a lot of negative sentiment. And that's just what it is actually sentiment very often. So also an ability to kind of see facts from feelings I know I've described myself, I've been described as intuitive. I think there's a place for that feeling side of things from the business. My brain is, is, is almost balanced perfectly with that logic and intuition. So when it's time to steer into the logical part of my brain, then I'm able to do that to great effect equally. When I'm led by my intuition, I pay attention to that as well because I think God designed us to have these various attributes that they can work together in harmony.
1: So it seems as if you have some pretty robust systems and processes for managing the fear and uncertainty. And I love that 24-hour rule that you have. So can you share that again with our listeners?
0: Sure. So my 24-hour rule says, quite simply, you've got 24 hours to wallow, to be upset, to cry, to puke, to do whatever you need to do. After which, you've got to snap out of it and get into solution mode. And solution mode where you're dealing with other people, for instance, could really just be about getting a strategy for opening up communication lines or expressing how the other person has made you feel or a business deal has gone wrong. And I'm really disappointed. Even something as basic as COVID came at the point that I had just signed or was just about to sign a fantastic contract. I could live and wallow in the what could have or I figure out, okay, how do I pivot from this situation? And what do I do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Safeguards, risk profiling, come up with solutions, and then just move in a positive direction. Always. You've got to keep moving.
1: I like that. I'm going to ask you what your advice. So it's almost like you're reframing things. I like the 24 hours. I'm going to try this one. So I don't, Tend to wallow. I tend to be pretty optimistic. In fact, some of my friends call me Mary Poppins because they think I'm overly optimistic. <laughs> but
0: I'm called to Japan. We're in good company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. So I'm like Mary Poppins. So yes, I will actually use this 24 hour rule because right now I honestly feel as if I'm at crossroads. So here I am and I will definitely reach out to you for your help and assistance. We're in the process of, as I mentioned, building this platform, Bella & Bella Productions, which we hope to be a leading platform around the globe to really help women, empower women, inspire them, and really to be masters of their own lives and destinies. At that point, as I'm building this, I've been given another opportunity recently in the UAE. So I'm juggling between those two. Still want to pursue, of course, you know, empowering women and uplifting women as one of my goals. But here's this other opportunity coming in the way. And so my mind is all over the place, but I will share that with you later. (laughs) So I do want to ask you, Mucha, I know you have this 24-hour rule. You have other systems that you put in place in your life. I know you are currently doing a lot of work on the Dubai's Business Women's Council. And I do want to talk about that work shortly. But what would be some of your advice for women. Because one of the things I've heard sometimes is that as women, we tend to get in our own way.
0: Right. I'm going to start with learning, having a learning spirit. And I think very often as women, we kind of think we've figured things out and I'd rather die before I ask Gina for help because I don't want her to think I don't know what I'm doing. And so we kind of create this force field around us that's impenetrable. Nobody can come and tell me how to go about doing things because I don't want them to perceive me as being weak. And I think that's absolutely awful. So the first thing is about really just learning from those who've gone before you, those who are doing something if not that you're planning to do something similar. And it's in that learning spirit that I think you're able to then perfect your craft and navigate these things easier. Second thing really is about communication. So we spoke earlier on about storytelling. The number of times I've been in rooms where it may start off as a business meeting that then pivots into a domestic, my family life is a horror story And you then start having me too in the room, you know, kind of going round round the houses, which has kind of led me to understand the power of honest communication and allowing yourself to be vulnerable. There's no shame in that game whatsoever. And there's such an empowering result that comes from understanding that your problem is not unique to you. And once you've got that figured out, you're then able, again, it comes back to this learning spirit that says, okay, so how did so-and-so do it, right? That may not work for my circumstance, but at least I know what options are available. I may actually fine-tune this solution to suit my situation. So you're kind of approaching everything from a solutions point of view rather than a problem standpoint,
1: Thank you for sharing that, Nisha. I love what you said about being vulnerable by learning from others. I know there's great power in really adopting a growth mindset and having, as you mentioned, that learning spirit and learning from others and expertise that you're looking to pursue and other areas of expertise that you may not be that familiar with. As you mentioned, the communication part, none of our problems are unique. (laughs) In fact, when I was sharing with my coach that I'm feeling nervous and anxious, about this new uh, opportunity, he said, everyone feels that, Gina. And knowing that we are not alone is so powerful.
0: Absolutely, Gina. I'll tell you what. So this is something that I've done. Whenever I've gone into a new workspace or a new work environment, very often you are overwhelmed Because either you don't quite understand the language, the acronyms that are being thrown around, the culture is something that you need to embed into. They're just all these questions that very often pop up in one's mind. And I think anyone who says I walk in without any form of reflection is not an honest human being. What I've discovered, though, that's worked very well for me is always studying my environment. So I walk into a new place. I want to understand the power dynamic. Who is effective? Why is that person effective? I'm almost like the lion in the Serengeti that's just observing. This is not prey, but observing because you want to understand the patterns to then see how you can then apply yourself in that situation and be as effective as you can be. The environments that just I keep coming back to this, you know, we face racism being people of color more often than perhaps we admit to. And it's about navigating, okay, how do I get that acceptance without selling my soul and morphing into something and someone that I'm not? How do I be effectively me and be accepted for me and what I bring to this table? How do I win trust and show my capability and I keep coming back to very often that comes from understanding the dynamic, the power dynamic in the room, the personalities in the room, who does well, who doesn't do well. What is it about the two different styles that differentiates these people? Where do I fit in this spectrum, if at all? And if there are things that I don't know, not being afraid to ask. I do not understand this. Could you please explain it to me?
1: I love your simile that you use. You're like a lion in the Serengeti just observing. You know, I think the time that we take to really observe, and as you mentioned, just looking at the power dynamics when you go in into a room, that could be so helpful in terms of any individual planning their next steps, planning what's best for them in whatever situation it may be. So thank you for sharing those tips and tidbits that I'm definitely going to start using as well.
0: Listen, you don't just get a lion just walking up to a scene and roaring and announcing its presence, right? So (laughs) there's a time and a place for these things. And I think the most successful hunter is the one who's able to understand who they're hunting and why.
1: I love it. (laughs) For sure. So I don't want to shift gears, but I wanted to spend the last part of our session together just talking about Your work with trying to bring Africa to the forefront here in the UAE and across the globe with your platforms. You have spoken specifically about bridging that gap between sub Sahara Africa and the rest of the world. I'm just going to start with a question Why not Africa? I'm not going to ask you why Africa, but why
0: not Africa? Why not Africa is just look at Africans who've done well to know why not right? I think we are, I'll take Zimbabweans as a population. Zimbabweans are captains of industry all over the place. If you were to go to Uzbekistan, go to corporate Uzbekistan, chances are you've got a C-suite Zimbabwean working in that space. Why not Africa very often? Because people don't know, people aren't made aware enough of what Africa is. And if you rely solely on what the mass media presents, then that kind of keeps us in this spiral. If you go on my LinkedIn, you'll see very often I use the hashtag dignity for Africa, which is something that came about from, it's my other half's hashtag that I've coined or that I I, I kind of work with him on because I strongly, we strongly believe in that, which is to say you know, very often just today, for instance, sorry, Gina, my mind is going in all sorts of directions. I love this question so much. So today, for instance, I was reading a report that was talking about monkeypox and the fact that it's been around Central and West Africa for a while. In fact, there have been pockets of outbreaks in very recent history. Nobody cared until it was picked up in Europe and in the West. All of a sudden, it's all over the news and everyone is fussing about it. And, you know, it's it's now a big deal. But when there were Africans dying, or not so much dying, because the, the rate of death is quite low, the probability of death is quite low with it, but suffering from it, it really wasn't taken as seriously. And you find this replicated in the way that we dealt with COVID. At the point you've got a new strain, guess what we're shutting down? We're shutting down Africa from the rest of the world. Ebola Care, But we don't care as much until it's discovered in the US. So it's this sort of narrative that really we are seeking to change. Why not Africa requires Africans to speak out to showcase what Africa truly is the gem that it really is. It comes with its flaws. Absolutely no doubt about that. But much as the Industrial Revolution came with its challenges and took years to perfect and lead into modern day, the digital age and everything that's come after it, Africa is behind the curve for historical reasons that are quite sound. And this is our time to just kind of push through so many barriers. And with that takes a concerted effort, a different lens of viewing it and its people. And yeah, just showcasing. And I think Expo was fantastic as a platform to showcase what the continent has to offer.
1: Thank you. And thank you for your work, because I think it is extremely critical to shift that narrative, as you mentioned. Also, Mayowa Padeoke, who was on episode 16, also spoke about that, really shifting that narrative so it is a more positive-centric Africa that the rest of the world and we are talking about. A lot of people will say because there's this big, huge, growing middle class in Africa. In fact, when I looked up in my research, it says the number of middle class Africans has tripled over the last 30 years to 31.3 million. In addition to the growing middle class, many individuals will say the future lies in Africa. Because when you look at the reports in terms of the numbers of youths that on the African continent, that are under 25, How do you propose that we could maximize the skills of those youths to maximize it for Africa, as well as for investors who are looking to invest in Africa?
0: Yeah, this one is an easy one, I think. We leverage technology. We live in a digital age. We can disseminate information so much quicker. We can learn so much quicker. We've got access at our fingertips literally in the way of mobile technology for African youth that upwardly mobile African that youthful population of African is forced to reckon with and there's a whole I guess dynamic between an aged leadership and a majority youthful population and a disconnect in the outlook so a lot of the cries that you hear coming from any forum that I certainly have been involved in has been around, you know, really just starting to replace that old school thinking with a fresh, dynamic, agile, youthful mindset that embraces the power of technology that's able to speak A language that investors understand, you know, Kenya, Rwanda are beautiful case studies of African countries that have been able to get multinationals setting up shop and get FDI coming through. That's not happening uniformly across the continent for obvious reasons. But I think a lot of it has to do with the leadership. So if you've got a leadership that understands the power of the age that we're in, understands how to leverage the technologies at our disposal, and then innovate, you know, I, I must kind of detour just for a second, Gina, and say, one of my frustrations in African centric forums is very often the emphasis on things that come out of the ground. So we're still talking agrarian, we're still talking about, you know, agribusiness and mines, you know, minerals coming out of the earth and tourism, these are all very important sectors. But we need to be talking about, you know, space exploration. Angola is doing quite well in this space. There are a few countries that have got great programs. Morocco's in there as well. We've got to see beyond what we know allow young people to be experimental and to be innovative and to invest in said innovation and make it attractive that they go and learn abroad and bring that knowledge back to the continent because this again is where we have a disconnect if you see the um, processes that run over here in the uae for instance where university graduates you're encouraged to go as a uae national to go and learn at mit and you're incentivized to be there and you're incentivized to bring back your knowledge and you're guaranteed a role and managerial role at the right sort of company. You've got, you know, nationalization, emiratization program, and you've got a lot of effort from the leadership to ensure that the youth is, one, engaged, two, participating. The Arab Spring, no one wants that repeated, right? And a lot of that came from disgruntled, unemployed youth. So, yes. The long and short of my statement here being harness technology, take advantage of this digital age, be open to getting fresh ideas in policy, get the young voices represented in policymaking, and be open to just changing the guard because you cannot Be a leader for 45 years and move with the times if you're stuck in things that were happening in 1904, is what I want to say there. But my point being, you cannot be in a position for 100 years and expect things to move on without getting fresh blood and fresh ideas in.
1: Yeah, no, I love uh, some of your ideas in terms of embracing technology. We know that's going to be key for sure in terms of leveraging or helping investors invest in all those untapped industries and markets. And I do have a question about, I know you said the leadership is aged. What accounts for that? Is that because there's a lot of nepotism? Because when you look at the statistics in terms of the number of youths that are under 25, and then you look at the ratio of elders who are in political leadership positions of power, what accounts for that? And why hasn't there been a transformation there?
0: Yeah, these are well-oiled machines. So there is a sense of protectionism that comes with into the hot seat, as it were, the proverbial hot seat. I think if if you fought hard enough to be in a position of power or if your ideology is that either your political party is the country or you own the country or you cannot be challenged because you're almost this absolute power, then... It becomes a family business sometimes almost. With that then comes these sorts of challenges where the old guard is refusing and has got the machinery of be it the military to keep them in position and that threat of violence, that threat of economic collapse Very often, you know, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're not really worried about ideology when you don't have food on your table. So there's very much a sense sometimes from the citizenry's point of view that, you know what, this is a battle that I either just do not have the energy, resource or time to fight when I need to feed my kids and make sure that they go to school.
1: Okay. Yeah, that would explain it. That explains a lot. I'm hoping that that shifts because I I think when we look at all the youths and then this burgeoning middle class, I mean, I think it was up to like 60% of Africa by 2030. It was close to 60% will be either of the middle or the high class by then. Much up if you could just share with us some of the key tenets of Agenda 2063. And how do you think we can engage individuals across the globe, not just the UAE, in towards building a more prosperous Africa? Because that really is Africa's blueprint for really transforming Africa into this global powerhouse.
0: Sure. So the list is is beautiful in that it talks to things that resonate with most of us. And a bit like you've got your SDGs from the United Nations, this is Africa's version of that, right? But from quite a unique bespoke perspective. I'll speak from my personal perspective of what I believe is really, truly important, but these are all contained in the agenda. You know, integration across Africa and trade becomes quite an important point. The flow of the movement of people across borders, the movement of goods and services, without the rigmarole of border control and you know it just being a headache and it being easier for me to sell my flowers or my horticultural product to the Netherlands than sell it to my neighbor the neighboring country it's this sort of thing that just stops making sense There are not being a flow of goods and services and you're almost completely reliant on the European Union for argument's sake who can then decide on what your pricing models look like and what the terms of trade are so you're always on the receiving end of everybody else's decision when actually you are providing food security for pretty much most of the world because you've got all this arable land you produce a disproportionate amount of produce compared to the rest of the world but somehow you're not the net beneficiaries of that There's a whole thing about jobs, about incomes, you know, quality of living is big. There's an agenda item on education as well. And we spoke about this earlier on. And some of the usual things like, you know, health, we talk about the digital age. So transformed economies are quite high up on there. I think what's interesting about the agenda, though, is how it looks to marine resources. So the blue economy, which is something that... Is quite aspirational, I think, for Africans. As I talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs earlier on, very often we're talking about things that are bread and butter that we can relate with. And I don't know that marine life is something that we've typically considered, but it's good to see that sort of thinking introduced. Then you've got the sustainability agenda, so environment, and really just making sure that your communities are not being decimated by some of the industrial developments that might be happening around them. It is quite a long list of aspirations. There's the elements on peace, there elements on space even. So it's quite a, an engaged, quite a well-considered agenda, but really exciting though to go through the various, I think there might be 20 points in it or 20 aspirational elements in it, all of which create Wakanda.
1: Thank you. I wasn't aware that there was something on marine life.
0: There is, yeah. The, the blue economy, ocean, they've got a blue economy included in, in the aspirations.
1: Wonderful. I definitely think it's ambitious, but I think it's work that all of us as nations need to be involved with and in making sure those goals come into fruition. And we know specifically the UAE has been steadily in expanding its presence as well as it its investment in Africa. And I know just looking at one of the recent studies that came out of 2021, it said that out of all the Middle East countries, the UAE was one of the strongest, one of the most assertive. And I know that you were part of that Dubai Expo, several Dubai Expo chats and conversations around how the UAE could still increase their involvement with Africa. What opportunities do you see for the UAE continuing conversations, the collaborations that they have, and also to further engage with all regions of Africa, not just specific points where they may have some kind of interest at hand?
0: Yeah, I think the UAE really is exemplary in the way that they've gone about their Africa agenda. There has been, in my view, a genuine respect for the continent and what it has to offer, a recognition, you know, we live in a desert, food is a big deal. So food security very often is a theme that comes out quite a lot from these conversations that I've been privy to. But beyond that, there just being this exchange, if you like, of ideas. And yes, we can bring digital, we can show you how digital incubators work, for instance, we can ensure that we showcase organizations in Africa that investors over here or business partners over here might be interested in. So a very solid commitment to the continent, which is evidenced. You talked about the Global Business Forum Africa as an example of a platform that calls business leaders, captains of industry into a room to talk about opportunities and to address issues related to trade and industry. And I think it's a powerful, powerful platform just from that networking perspective, from a showcasing perspective and demystifying doing business in Africa, quite frankly, because that is still quite hazy Space for very many. Going forward, I would say that, yeah, just keeping that dialogue open is really important. The idea, really, being that when you look at some of the other trade relationships, I won't mention which country specifically, but sometimes you find there's a a very extractive mindset. I.e. we take, take, take from the continent, everything from labor. We have these large infrastructure and projects that we push out there, but we're going to get laborers from our country. We're going to remit you know fees funds revenues profits back to our country so you are not the net beneficiaries of all the work and all the so called development that's happening which is egregious quite frankly i do think that the uae does have a conscious way a more conscientious model of doing business and i think a lot of that is driven by the religious tenets that drive how things are done and just a genuine respect i believe for for mankind
1: I agree. I know they've been keen on participating and just constructive dialogue. And I like what you said about they've taken the stance where it's like, how can we mutually benefit? So not just looking at what they can get, but also how they can actually be of service to Africa when they're looking at investment opportunities and economic development. I definitely applaud the leadership here in the
0: UAE. Absolutely. And, you know, just as a a litmus test for how well-meaning the efforts have been, if you consider that for the hundreds of years that we've had Expos globally, this is the first time where every single African country has been represented and the African Union has had a pavilion of its own that's never happened in the history of World Expos. So this really just comes to show some of them would have been sponsored as well by the leadership here. But this just comes to show the extent to which the UAE takes this mandate of being a first and a leader and a thought leader in various fields comes to life.
1: Well stated, Mucha. And I love what you said in your article in Travel Essence magazine. You said, what we will likely remember most is how Expo made us feel. It gave Africa dignity, for which we will always be grateful. It was just so well stated there. And which reminds me, I just want to ask you one question regarding the UAE. How critical would you say the UAE has been in terms of propelling and giving you opportunities as an entrepreneur since you've been here in 2012?
0: Yeah, I think the entrepreneurial route in the UK isn't something that I contemplated very seriously, only because the market is saturated, it's old, it's sticky, it's hard to penetrate. So the barriers to entry are, in my view, quite staggering. And you know, working in the city in London, you are exposed to the same type of people. So My world is, you know, revolved around bankers, consultants, lawyers, because I worked in the Square Mile, worked in Canary Wharf, and these are the people that I would have seen if I wasn't at home with sort of family and and personal friends. What the UAE does is it opens up a myriad of sectors to you and a myriad of people from all walks of life. It's so cosmopolitan, so multicultural. It's easy for you to understand where the opportunities are, just from having conversations, striking up conversations at brunches, for instance. So I think it came at the right time in my professional development, in my personal life, being here. And it really does get the imagination going because it's easier to spot where gaps exist and setting up a business here is not difficult you've got access to market quite easily. The hard work is building networks that work for you. But once you've been around long enough, there's a lot of false news out there as well. People overpromising, overcommitting, over-committing and not necessarily following through on stuff, which comes back to my initial point about just being able to see through a lot of that mess and then pinning down what is value add to you and how to go about monetizing it or making a business out of it.
1: So with that being said, you talked a little bit earlier about vetting, you know, your network, looking at what is as you just mentioned value add to you. Any tips that you would give a young woman who's starting on her entrepreneurial journey right now?
0: Not everything that shines is gold. So really, it's it's just so important to just sometimes take your time to do your due diligence and not everything that's presented to you as being exciting and accessible is the right thing for you. You know, there, there's so many lessons that I've learned on this journey. So that's the one thing. I think another thing is also, I know I've offended people who've asked for my services for free, and I've been very comfortable to walk away from opportunity. I'm beyond the stage where I need exposure. And I'm doing things as a barter to trade for visibility, because if you don't, see me then it's okay you don't have to maybe you're not meant to so it's it's that sort of thing about just knowing where to be what rooms you want to be in not every scene should be yours either not every networking event is the right one for you or brings the right people to you and you know you want to almost just take a step back from all the noise and shiny lights take stock take your time vet investigate Ask around, get people to give references to people who may seem to have that really shiny idea. And at the point that you feel you've done enough research, then you can start engaging. Otherwise, you'll get caught up in a whirlwind of a lot of time-wasting stuff. And I don't know if people are anything like me. I don't feel I have time to waste. My days and hours are sacred. So... Let me spend them where I feel I am most effective or getting the most value from.
1: Yeah, I like the, a lot of the points that you said. Knowing your worth, of course. And as you mentioned, just taking a step back sometimes. Because sometimes I think we are in the weeds too much. We don't take the time to step back and reflect and seeing if this opportunity is really a good one for us. Is it going to be something that's going to bring us to our goal? That's what I always usually ask myself.
0: And you know what? I think it's so easy to get derailed. You're contending, a young person coming into the UAE, you're contending with the flashing lights and the social, you know, fun side of things, which can be quite consuming. Um, And it's so important to just keep your head in the game and not be easily distracted by all the noise and shiny things around you.
1: Very prudent advice. Thank you, Muta. Well, we're almost going to wrap it up. You describe yourself as a woman of many hats, which I definitely believe you are, but I want to actually ask what's next for Muta?
0: My primary focus right now is really just growing my professional tribes platform. I really do so strongly believe that it's unique. It's interesting. You know, I have some riveting conversations there and I think the world could learn a thing or two from just tuning in and getting involved and getting involved. Beyond the content that I push out, it really is about that creation of network. You know, we don't have very many people. You'll find almost always that when I have my pamphlet sessions, I always have an African or a Black person represented. This is my subtle way of championing the continent and its people. So uh, seldom will you find a panel that doesn't have one of us on it, because I don't think that we're invited into very many rooms. And if... I'm going to go to the ends of the world to find an expert to talk about whatever, because that's important to me. Growth for me as well is really just growing my business. I actually want to be overwhelmed by workload so that I feel, OK, it's now time to grow further, to take on less and maybe focus on very specific things that I see are the low hanging fruit or where margins are best. But really, I keep coming back to my professional tribes because it's something, a platform that I'm extremely proud of. And the numbers don't quite reflect where I believe it ought to be after a couple of years, but we keep, we keep pushing forward. One day the algorithms will favor us and get more people to see our content. <laughs>
1: Definitely, we're going to share the word. And actually, I'm going to take a brief pause because I, I want to ask you can you share with our listeners where they can find professional tribes as well as your parent company, Menolith, please?
0: So, professional tribes, most of the full discussions are on Facebook because that's just what Africa has easiest access to in terms of data and their ability to, to access social media. So, Facebook, professional tribes. Instagram, you'll find excerpts. I also have a YouTube channel that I've set up, which is still very slow, but all these are growing. And we've got a Twitter handle as well. I'm not very active on Twitter, truth be told, but it's, this is a phased out approach. So most of the concentration currently, and of course LinkedIn, would be LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram.
1: Thank you, Mucha. And we will definitely include that in the show notes. I want to ask you a couple more questions to wrap up. Is there a question that you haven't been asked that you would like to be asked more often?
0: How are you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm, I'm kidding, Gina. Do you know what? Not really. I think, okay, so I'm going to say something a little bit weird here, right? And work with me. For all my championing and all my advocacy for women-related issues and women empowerment, I feel that we're at a stage in the world, in life, in the history of mankind where we can't keep isolating women's issues as this strange anomaly that requires all this attention because it should be common now that we're embedded into society and accepted for the contributions that we make. So I would like to see panels where women are asked less about how they balance work and life, how mm, the role that motherhood plays. I know that these are important things, but leave that for my friends and let's focus on the hard-hitting issues that you're asking male counterparts.
1: That's a valid point in terms of shifting the conversations. Yeah, the work-life balance, I, I have heard those on several panels and have been asked that, and especially in light of this last March Women's History Month, which was Break the Bias. So there was quite a bit of talk around that. And I know you were on, I think you were being interviewed by Dubai I. Yes, it was Dubai I. And when we looked at the percentage of women, this is just talking about women applying for jobs. And we know that women won't apply for a job if they only think they're 50% qualified and they only check off those boxes. But Guys would do it if they're 100% qualified. But I think even bringing to the forefront in light of those conversations, bringing to the forefront, what can companies do to ensure that there are more women in the boardrooms? And that's definitely a conversation I've had with some of the past guests. What are some of the things that needs to shift in terms of the dynamics of the workplace to make sure there is space and room for women to grow And also be mentored, not only by just the women, but by men in the company.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of diversity and inclusion programs land on deaf ears if people aren't made accountable for the things that they commit to. So if you think of the George Floyd movement that followed his sad departure, companies stood up and shouted from mountaintops about how they are reviewing their policies and how, you know, diversity and inclusion and equity are really important. And it's part of their DNA and X, Y, and Z, they're overhauling stuff. I bet you, if you were to run some sort of an audit a couple of years later, you'll find that nothing much would have happened since those discussions were had, which means that It's not being taken seriously enough still. I know that organizations will have policies, for instance, that talk about the recruiting process, make sure that your shortlist of candidates includes at least X percent of females, X percent of this race ETC. But when it comes down to it, just having those stats to show that you are inclusive in your recruiting process, but no one ever crosses the line who doesn't look like the recruiting manager takes us back to square one. So my view is, you know, more robust policies, more robust, I guess, responses at, at you know, laws. And it's great to see, again, bringing the UAE into the fold on this, to see this, if you like, this breath of fresh air, this breath of life that's been breathed into the labor laws out here, paying a lot more attention to some issues that traditionally perhaps weren't focused on as much, but diversity and inclusion has or should become part of corporations' DNA beyond talk shop. I think people of the minority groups that perhaps don't typically go for roles as well, having these industries demystified for them, which is part of what I tr- do through Professional Tribes, which is to say, you know, let's get women in STEM. So I've had, engineers from a leading uh, telco in Kenya, Safaricom to come on and talk about their journey as, you know, into STEM as engineers in the telco space, young girls aren't seeing these people, young girls aren't learning or don't have a lens into this type of role model because all they're seeing is, Nicki Minaj, perhaps, and thinking that all I'm good for is being on TV or my aspirations in life are around of fame that's framed around sort of popular culture. And this is a bugbear of mine, honestly, for the amount of brilliance that exists in this world. I think we just need to be able to showcase these people more, make them more accessible. And this is part of what my professional tribes journey is making successful people more accessible to to the masses that ignites light and inspires people to think beyond BET. No disrespect to BET, there's a place for creatives in this world, but I'm sure you understand the point that I'm making. There's more to life and we've got more skills than entertaining the world.
1: Yes, 100%. I definitely agree. What you talked about in terms of companies not making the talks about diversion and inclusion just a part of, you know, a conversation and not really taking action afterwards. I've seen a lot of work here who are actually really doing the actual work and really providing viable opportunities for young women, as you mentioned, in STEM, which is extremely important for us. I don't know what the percentage looks like in terms of UAE, but I know on the public school level, As a manager, we have been providing not only opportunities but pathways for young girls to get more involved in STEM.
0: Absolutely, and actually, part of my CSR mandate in one of the financial institutions I worked for was to go into university. So I did stuff with an entity called Injaz, where you're going and demystifying the private sector. You know, you are the example that a woman can go in and be part of an exco in a large global bank. You're an accessible figure and you're letting them, at least you're you're triggering their imagination beyond perhaps working for a Tisalat or Diwa, which, again, that's great for them. And you've got engineering roles within that. But I think really just opening up sectors to local youth is such a powerful, powerful tool, especially in support of the emiratization program.
1: Definitely. I'm going to ask two more questions. Any lasting pearls of wisdom for young women and young individuals who are listening to our podcast today? Young girls and boys, as well as young men and young women. Because as we've mentioned, this, the podcast and female empowerment is really everyone's responsibility.
0: Sure. Just be you. Know who you are. Walk in the confidence that you are unique. And no one can replicate what you have to offer. Your job is to really just polish your skill set and polish your delivery and create a culture of excellence for yourself first and foremost. And then everything else follows. Be patient with yourself as well and forgive yourself along the journey. I don't know that anyone's ever had a perfect path to anything where things don't quite go to plan or You know, you start off the year with a very clear vision for what your year is going to look like. And it doesn't quite pan up that way. Rather than focusing on everything that hasn't happened. How about looking at it from a different perspective, which is to say, actually, whilst I was waiting for this to happen, X, Y and Z happened instead. What can I do within this space to either improve it, to perfect it, to maybe even steer because my vision might not be right for this particular season in life. So what else could I, should I be doing? And I think what that does is it kind of saves from a lot of mental health issues and concerns, especially being far away from home. If you're in the UAE, for instance, yes, it's an exciting place, but you've got to be sensible and responsible with the mandate that's upon you, which is, okay, I'm here let me be the best version of myself in this environment. And that goes beyond your work output to your spirituality, your mentality, your physicality, everything, everything.
1: Thank you, Mucha. I really appreciate that. Yeah, working on a skill set, I always say work on yourself first, do the inner work. And then I like what you said about being compassionate along your journey, because that is important. You know, learning to forgive yourself and being patient with yourself. One of our past guests, Tatiana Brown, I think she was on episode 13 or 14. I would have to look it up. But well, she just graduated from NYU and she talked about she learned a lot in her four years at NYU about tempo and really taking time for the things that need time, which reminded me of what you just said.
0: I love that. Yeah, I I think, you know, life is almost like an orchestra, Gina in the sense that there's a rhythm to, and I this is very much what what Tatiana would have been saying, I suspect. It's so easy to go off beat in a rush to get to a result. And I keep coming back to this, just take your time. Don't take too much time. You don't want to become horizontal and procrastinate your way out of every situation either. But there's something to be said about applying a patience. It's a bit like the kid who says, I don't want to go to medical school because the course is too long. Yet you could have been the best surgeon that ever existed had you been patient enough to do those eight years plus.
1: Yeah, beautifully stated. And I like that. Life is like an orchestra. I love all these analogies <laughs> that you have. Lion and the Serengeti. I remember all of these. Okay, Misha, we are going to wrap up and thank you for your time. But before we do, I just want to ask you anything again That you've dreamt of doing? I know you said you want to definitely promote Professional Tribes, that platform, definitely garner more awareness of the platform. And anything that you've dreamed of doing that you haven't done yet?
0: I'll tell you what, Gina. I grew up believing that I would be on the big screen one day because I've always loved the creative arts and I'm a creative by nature. So I've still got my aspirations for my first movie role floating around somewhere
1: love it absolutely love it so much i would like to personally thank you today for being really authentic with us just really talking about the positive power of female relationships finding your tribe being vulnerable being a student of the world. I love what you said around being a student of your environment, really adopting that learning spirit and growth mindset. We really appreciate all that you're doing to showcase black excellence, putting it front and center for the rest of the world. And most importantly, I'm extremely appreciative of all the work that you're doing to bring a global voice to Africa so that not only she prospers, but the rest of the world. Thank you, Matcha.
0: You are most welcome. It's been such such a pleasure speaking to you, Gina. And I'm glad we finally crossed the line with this. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it?
1: Yes. And I'm so excited that you've ended our season one. And now we will be moving into season two. Diving for Pearls, Africa.
0: Bravo. Look forward to following that. Thanks, Gina. Thank you and have a good night. You too.
1: Music on this podcast is provided by Alexander Kirshtisch. The composition is titled Beautiful Spheres, which was released on April 3rd, 2019. Alexander Kirstish can be found on Facebook at Alexander Kirstish and on Instagram at Alexander Kirstish underscore official.